Welcome to the movie Down Low with QC. I am QC. And I'm Big J. And today we're going to be talking about our list of the 75 greatest horror films of all time. They will, of course, be in no particular order. So do you know that for the 75 to 21, you can see them and hear them at any time. We will be doing 23-1 in order. Please note that this may contain... Graphic language... And spoilers. <laughs> Bigger issue is spoilers. So if you've not seen the film and do not want to be spoiled, don't listen to this. Or do. What the hell do we care? There may, and as Jordan said, there may be some graphic language. So viewer discretion is advised. Yeah. QC does have a potty mouth. <laughs> <laughs> QC has a potty mouth. Whatever. <laughs> God damn it, son of a bitches! Oh my god! It's like his favorite cut three that words out. to say. <laughs> we're not cutting it out. It's part of our charm. Okay, so we're going to be talking about today our no- number 75 on the list, and that film is. The Devil's Rejects. Yeah, The Devil's Rejects. Now, it's a 2005 film. Yes, released in July of 2005, actually. Now, when I was making this list, you know, I think coming up with the top 20 is pretty easy. You know, I think 20 scariest horror movies, not that difficult to do. I think coming up with a top 75 is when I got, especially when we got towards the end is when it got a little more tricky because that's when you're starting to talk about films that you think are interesting and maybe have merit but nowhere near as much merit to make the top 20 or even the top 50 for that sake and what's your reasoning behind that so then you have to really start getting nitpicky and the last five on my list definitely i mean some of them are actually great films but it's just how do you consider that to be I guess the question is, what do you consider more important? So, um, The Devil's Rejects is number 75. So we're saving, you know, it's the last one, and it's last. Um, and why is it 75? You know, why is it on the list? Um, I'm sure there are some people asking that. Because, you know, when we're talking about Rob Zombie, it, we're definitely going to be talking about someone who is polarizing as a filmmaker and as a person as well. Um, so let's give a brief synopsis of the film though. So the film is a quasi sequel to Rob Zombie's first film, House of a Thousand Corpses, and it follows Firefly Flamley and, uh, the police have raided their home in the very beginning of the film and some of them escape, not all of them. One of them is killed, one of them is captured, but the three, two of them escape. Uh, Baby Firefly, who's played by Rob Zombie's wife, Sherry Moon Zombie, and Otis Firefly who is played by Bill Mosley. They are then met up by, like, a part of... Who's someone who's a part of the clan, but was not openly part of the clan. Uh, Captain Spaulding, played here by Sid Haig. And they are on the run from the law, from, a sh- from Sheriff Widell, who is out to get revenge in any way possible. And he's played by William Forsyth. So, that, that's the basic setup of the film. Um, I'm... You know, I mean, I guess if someone described that to you, you're thinking, well, this isn't a horror movie. You probably think it's more of a road movie or a Western. And it is those things as well. I think that's one of the more interesting things about the film is that it's both a road film, it's a Western, as well as a really nasty, nihilistic, grindhouse 70s 
exploitation horror film. He's definitely, and I think that's what makes this more interesting. So to talk about Rob Zombie, we have to talk about his first film, A House of a Thousand Corpses. So he has been interested in making film for some time before he made his first film. Um, and he was originally attached to direct a remake of The Crow in 1998, which is very strange to me because, um, or maybe it was 99, but strange to me because The Crow came out in 1984. So I don't think anyone was clamoring for a remake of it. Um, but regardless, he redesigned or designed something for Universal, um, Universal Studios for their Haunted Maze section. And Universal, it went really well. It was very well received. So it, this kind of got him his first job. And so he made kind of, they wanted something similar to that. So he made House of a Thousand Corpses. And the budget varies. I've heard it's, it says seven million on, but I've heard, also heard from him it's three to four to five million. Um, and then he shot some of his stuff at his home when they didn't have the budget or when they were fighting with production. Um, so he made this film and Universal saw it and were afraid that it was going to get the NC-17, which it did. He had to cut it and cut it and cut it and decided not to release it. So then it jumped around to a couple of different other studios before it landed on Lionsgate. And Lionsgate picked it up and bought it. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, picked it up and bought it. And they the movie made its money back within, I think, the first... It didn't make a ton of money, but it made its money back. So Lionsgate com immediately commissioned a sequel to The Devil's Rejects. And I mean, and this is the film that made... Rob Zombie kind of a name I mean this is what got him the directing job for Halloween which made is to this day I think without inflation it made the most money out of any Halloween film we'll, we'll see if that stays with the new Halloween movie coming out here in this, this October but it is it made a ton of money and so it put him in, a main, in the mainstream how anyone watching this movie could ever think he could make a mainstream film or was interested in making a mainstream film is beyond me. So I guess a little preface about my feelings towards Rob Zombie. I, you know, in the horror community, he definitely has a lot of respect. I mean, there's definitely some people out there who cannot stand him. Um, and for reasons that I think are valid. Um, and there's some, but there's some who don't think he can do a whole lot wrong. Or even when he doesn't do great, at least it's interesting. And, you know, he was part of the Splatter Pack Boys uh, that came out in 2005. And Eli Roth, um, Alexander Aja, there were a couple others, but those were kind of the three main ones. Kind of all released these very... Greg McLean, I'm sorry, that's the other one I was thinking of. Released within the same span of time these brutal, incredibly violent, dark horror films. And they were, I would say they were just, they kind of shook up the status quo a little bit and ushered in, oh, James Wan was the other splatter pack boy, and ushered in kind of a new wave of horror at the time. Because horror was definitely something else before they got there at that time. I mean, it changes. It's very it's a very silical genre in general. Uh, silical genre in general. Sorry, all those G's kind of lying together. <laughs> um, and, you know, my feelings about Rob Zombie are very mixed. Um, I did not care for House of Thousand Corpses. 
I think it's trash. I think it's terribly made. I think it's terribly directed. I think the acting is pretty awful. And by all standards, I think it's more of like watching like an MTV music video for an hour and 42 minutes, which I do not want to watch an MTV music video for an hour and 42 minutes. And um, I found his Halloween films to be, um, well, my biggest issue is they're just not Halloween films. Have you seen any of the Halloween, the new Halloween movies? Uh, and if you have, they weren't that much. I think so. Yeah, no, it's been a while, though, since I've seen them. Right, and so, see, the thing is, I didn't forget them because, you know, I happen to have a soft spot for the original Halloween. And, ooh, I, I, but I do appreciate one thing about him, where the other Splatter Pack boys... I think, and not all of them, and there's always exceptions, I do think the problem with these directors is that they love horror. These are fans of the genre. These are people who think the genre, like how I feel about it. You know, I mean, you would go over to our house, I'm sure they had movie posters, every movie, the uncut DVDs, the director cut of everything you can think of. And you would be wowed, and I'm sure they can talk about it far more intellectually than even I can. And I'm not even, you know, I'm not saying that I'm that intellectual, but I'm just saying is that I guarantee that. But I feel like a lot of the times they don't have their own voice. Because they're just, it's just replicated and it's very reverential. And it's just like, how much gore can we put on the screen and how much things. And what I think they miss about these 70s grindhouse exploitation films that they revere so much, which are great, a lot of them are great, is that where's the political subtext that we're very prevalent in those films. These filmmakers like Wes Craven, Toby Hooper, uh, George A. Romero, just to name a few, were generally speaking humanists who were believed in a lot of different causes. You know, George A. Romero really despised racism and he wanted to talk about it in a film, so he made zombie movies to talk about racism. You know, Wes Craven made one of the most violent, disgusting films to talk about violence. You know, and, and so on and so forth. So, um, I do think Rob Zombie, though, does have a voice and vision. Dubious voice, sure. <laughs> he definitely has it, and I think you can see that in The Devil's Rejects. Not that I didn't see it in House of Thousand Corpses, but it's more, I think it's definitely more focused. I mean, first off, let's talk about, you know, this is a very 70s style film. And it actually takes place in the 70s, which is something kind of rare. A lot of these movies that love, you know... Um, the grindhouse they take place in modern days. So that allows them to use, you know, split screen, freeze frames, uh, you know, lots of 70s rock music, tons of, you know, classic music are peppered throughout the film. Um, so it allows him to, you know, and splotches and, you know, things that were very, you would see in a drive-in cinema in the 70s. And I think that gives him a little more license to be the way he wants it to look artistically. The griminess of it, you know, kind of like almost the sepia tone-ish of the film, you know. So, th that's the first change. A lot of these, you know, he, it's, this movie is actually taking place in the 70s. It clearly is inspired more than just horror films. Yes, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is definitely up, you know, as part of the inspiration. But so is, you know, Sam Peckinpah and Badlands and The Wild Bunch and, you know, The Good, Bad and the Ugly with Sergio Leone and Clint Eastwood films. I can see a lot of that in there. So let's, I guess we should really talk about the movie. Um, so critically, and it was divisive, like most of his films, although it is considered, it is the best reviewed film 
on Rotten Tomatoes, not on Metacritic, but on Rotten Tomatoes, has a 53%, and it holds a 53% exactly on Metacritic, so they're the exact same. And there are some critics out there who really, who actually gave it some positive reviews. The AV Club, uh, both Nathan Raban, and I want to say Scott Tobias, both gave it positive reviews and wrote strongly about it afterwards. Roger Ebert gave it positive reviews. Peter Travers from Rolling Stone gave it a positive review. And then there were some people who absolutely despised it. Mark Kermode thought it was the most just deplorably stupid film he'd ever seen. James Bernalini said that he needed to take a shower after watching it and gave it a half star out of four, which is, <laughs> I mean, I think he was like number two or three on the worst films of the year for him in that year. Um, so we definitely have a wide range of reviews. So why, so why is this film on the list? Okay, so I, I think because it has a zeitgeist feel to it. And I think that is the one thing it does very, very well. And what I mean by zeitgeist is that the stuff with the Sheriff Wydell does capture what the political subtext that was going on at the time. You know, the prisoners in Gitmo Bay, the Iraq War, the F, you know, the war on terrorism. I think there's a lot of parallels between what his, his character arc and what was going on at the time, which to me is great horror. That is what great horror should be. It should not just be, you know, blood and guts and gore everywhere. Although there is plenty of that in this film, which we're <laughs> gonna get to in a minute. So to me, that's why I made the list. And I, I struggled, I almost didn't put it on. I thought about maybe swapping it, swapping it out with another film, but I remember the power it held when I saw it. And when I rewatched it recently, the movie is still disturbing. The movie is still, it's messed up. For, you know, so, okay. You watched it recently. Mm -hmm. What was your biggest takeaway? <laughs> um, I think disturbing is probably an understatement of the movie. I mean, it's got definitely a lot of, uh, um, just kind of the elements in it um, are just uh, just gross and just I, I you know it is really honestly just the fact that it is on your horror film list is probably the fact that it's more disturbing than yes than anything then there are some gory play, gory pieces but it's also just mainly disturbing well it is incredibly disturbing um would you choose to watch it again um not just as a leisure film. I would yeah. not watch it again. And I think that's that's something that's really important. Now, let's be clear here. Um, I have a more mixed opinion of the film. I do not think it's perfect. I definitely have issues with it. And I think it's important to discuss those. So I, I don't think the first half of the film, like, and I would say the first 30, 45 minutes, is the best the film has to offer. If anything, I actually think that's the most troublesome part of the film and the one where a lot of critical derision comes from. So, you know, so first off, in the beginning of the film, it actually opens up really great. I have to say the first two or three minutes, I actually think it's pretty genius. Opening with, it's very gross and distasteful, but idea of opening up with the murder victims and this fake newsreel, like you're watching a true, like, you know, like some helter-skelter kind of documentary or something. And, you know, but that's also where the beginning of the problems start, too. Because you're wondering, okay, the first scene, the first actual scene in the film, 
we see one of the Firefly families, Tiny, dragging a naked dead woman around. And it's treated like that woman could be anything. Tarp, deer carcass, not like a human being. And there's almost no sympathy for the fact that there's this incredibly, you know, terrible thing happening. Like, eh, whatever. And then we get to the police are there. They all show up with their cop cars. Although not with, I don't know if they had Kevlar on. Maybe it was the 70s. I'm not sure if that existed in Texas. Maybe they just didn't need it in Texas. Um, I, I think it existed, but regardless, it doesn't matter that... They're there to attack, and the Firefly family, you know, is ready. They all get their Kevlar, their homemade cheap, <laughs> which I actually think is pretty Body suits. Yeah, which I think is pretty intelligent. Doesn't completely say that, but I think right there it starts weird film. First off, the first five minutes of that dialogue that he loves to write. I mean, Rob Zombie loves the word fuck, and he likes to use it in like three or four times in a sentence. And God, that first couple of lines of dialogue. Are just really awkward and not it feels very like writerly like I'm gonna write this to be edgy <laughs> you know and I, I didn't I don't think although the shootout seems really thing but another thing that is if you are gonna go for that 70s grindhouse one thing and I'm gonna bring this up because it starts at the beginning and it continues all the way through the end I think all the digital blood um, there's a couple of scenes where people are shot where it's very clear that it's digital and I understand probably for time constraints, but if you're gonna go for that grindhouse, they didn't have that back then. They didn't have the technology, and it looks phony. Hmm. There's one stab scene, which we'll talk about a little bit later, where a knife is thrown that is so clearly fake um, that it, it kind of takes you out of the film. And it takes you out of that idea of being a grindhouse film. It's clearly a pastiche. So it just if you're gonna go for it, I say go all the way. Go with practical effects. But, so, anyways, the three of them escape and go on a lovely... Two of them escape, sorry, not three. And then the clown escapes. And they go on a lovely uh, road trip with a little light murder and torture and some sexual violence just for the fun of it. And that scene where they capture the Banjo and Sullivan, that's what they're called, they're Banjo and Sullivan. Um, Wow. I, I understand it's supposed to be controversial. I do get that. I'm not by any means a moral compass of film. I love film. I push the edge, you know, push the boundaries. Um, I, I would like to ask you, and I think you know what scene I'm talking about, where they capture the two women and the men, mm -hmm. and then they torch them. Did you think it went too far? And I'm particularly I'm talking about the scene with Priscilla Barnes, who plays the older woman. She looks great, by the way. I will say, for in her 50s, Priscilla Barnes looked really good. Um, not that that matters, but she looks amazing. But, you know, and Otis with the gun. Um, I don't know. In the context of this film, I mean, I don't... It seems to follow the, the, the goriness of the film and, like, the theme he was going after, but... Did you, but I, I think you can do that without, I, I do, we, I feel like he did it just to rub people's nose in it, just to piss people off. I, I do not understand how that moves the story forward. Mm. I don't understand the point of that scene, other okay. than a lot of 70s films have that. 
But to me, like, I, I don't need to see her raped with a gun. And I think maybe now, you know, this was in 2005, but I think in 2018, with the Me Too movement, <clears throat> excuse me, with, um, you know, the Harvey Weinstein scene scandal, all of this stuff, it, it's a little uncomfortable to watch. It's more than a little uncomfortable. It's incredibly uncomfortable. And I felt the same way about it in 2005 as I do now. I do not think that scene needs to exist. Now, if there was a purpose for it in the film, you know, I would be all right with that. Or at least I would be understanding But I do think he went too far with it. I mean, and then afterwards he jokes about, you know, I've got your wife's, you know, stink on my gun. Mm. And that's when I'm like, really? And we're going to make a joke about, like, uh, uh. And there is a lot of dark humor in this film. Um, and it, it's laced throughout the entire film. Um... I think in the beginning it doesn't work. Hmm. And until Captain Spaulding shows up I'm to, to join the crew, I, I was not interested. Because remember, he doesn't really show up till the, very end, till the end of that scene. That's just Otis and Baby. And I think another reason with that is the acting a little bit. I do not think Sherry Moon Zombie is very good in this film. Hmm. What, did you like her performance? No. Why? Not particularly. Um... I don't, I, I don't know. The whole film like rubbed me wrong. So well, right, I so that. there's like. The <laughs> but I think even if film rubs you wrong, I think if you can tell what the performance is good. I'm just wondering if you didn't like her performance, what did you find that didn't work for you? Mm. I'm not sure. Well, for me, it wasn't believable, and I just didn't buy anything she was saying. I felt like she was reading words off a cue card or a lot of it, and on top of that, like. And I think she's become a better actress. I'm really thrilled. And we'll talk about another Rob Zombie film um, later on the list, which I actually think is much better than this one. I mean, not much better, maybe, but it's better than this one. Um, and she does do a good job, and she is convincing. I just don't think that character is well thought out. To me, it feels like a male, like, it's like the manic pixie dream girl. Like, oh, she's cool, but she's a killer. She's the manic pixie, like, southern conservative redneck murderous tramp <laughs> dream girl she, you know she's she's um <laughs> I shouldn't say that she's some politician's dream girl <laughs> some southern polit republican politician <laughs> you should see if you could only That's see Big awful. J's face it's truth <laughs> that one who ran in Alabama I just don't remember his name it's just uh, Anyways, so, you know, I just don't think, and I think Bill Mosley is fine as Otis. Um, he is creepy as, you know, um, but I just think, I don't want to spend time with him. Now, once Captain Spaulding comes in, and that's played by Sid Hake, and he's the clown, um, I think he is a good actor. And I think he, even though he's detestable, there is something charming about him. And the way he, he knows how to deliver dialogue, even when it's terrible on, like, the page. He just knows how to deliver it. Or I think the other two struggle with some of the dialogue. It sounds too garbled coming out of their mouths. Oh, he's much more believable. He's, it's because I think he has experience as an actor. I mean, he's worked, someone who worked in actual Grindhouse film in the 70s and has worked with Quentin Tarantino. So this is not, you know, so I think that helps. So once he enters the scene, the film... I think it gets a lot better. I mean, 
But I do want to talk to you about that that torture scene because I do think people really do understand understand that scene. And I mean, he sexually, you know, tortures a woman. Otis does. The girl ends up, you know, humiliating those two girls as well by making them slap each other across the face. And then he brutally murders the husbands later. And then, and by the way, they all—they didn't need to do this. They were just holding off time to get guns. And then he slices that guy's face off and wears it as a mask. And then puts it on the only surviving person's face and hangs her on a hook. She's not hurt physically or mentally. She's ruined. And then she's found by the maid and she went screaming and she doesn't take the mask off for whatever and just lands flat into a semi-truck. And the reason I have a problem with that is it's so clear he sympathizes with these, or at least is interested in these killers, that he could care less about the humans. And I think in order to make a great horror film, like a great one, you need to have interesting villains as well as interesting protagonists. And there is no interesting protagonist. There are only antagonists. So that, that's my thought on that. Now, we need to discuss, I, now that I've been super critical and super mean about the film, I do want to discuss what's really good about it. First off, let's talk about some of the dark comedy, because there's tons of it. I love the Tutti Frutti scene. I think that's really funny. <laughs> and I yes, it's a little obnoxious, and that profane hillbilly dialogue persists throughout the whole film. But that's one scene where I think it works. You know, and there's just something really comical about a family, whether or not, you know, they're the Manson family, you know, arguing about whether they have time to stop for ice cream. You know, and I just, I find that funny. And that's something that's more true and relatable. The brothel scenes with um, their friend of theirs, Charlie, uh, is really funny. The The prostitute is played by um, one of the, her name's E.G. Daly, and she did one of the voices for the Rugrats. And she, there is a zaniness to them that I just find, like, you think HBO just wish they had that brothel really existed so they could film it for late night. I mean, it's, this, that stuff is a really interesting, funny, and fun. And then there's that great scene um, when they bring in the film critic, the Gene Shalit-esque film critic, this, uh, the sheriff in the voice, to talk about how they're related to Groucho Marx, and then the film critics say something very negatively about Elvis, because Elvis ruined Groucho Marx, and they get, don't you ever say his anything bad about the state of Elvis, I'll kill you boys. <laughs> that, those scenes are all very funny, even though I do think that scene is just to show how much of a cinephile Rob Zombie is. At least it's well written. I, you know, and so, you know, and it is funny, you know, a lot of people did notice that these characters were named after Groucho Marx characters. So, once we get past the Banjo and Sullivan scenes, that's when I think the film becomes a decent film. And I think a lot of it has to with the character of Sheriff Wydell. And the reason I want to bring it up is because of the political subtext. He is trying to catch these people. He believes they are the devil. And in fact, with what they've seen, he's probably right. But he's trying at first to follow some semblance of law. To follow the guidelines. Doesn't really work. And he cannot hold it together. And he feels like he's failed. Because his brother was killed by the end of the first film. And nobody remembers that. But whatever, that's fine. Um, unless you're like a hardcore fan. I'm sure they will like come at me with pitchforks to my house. Um, but with that being said, 
I liked how his character finally is like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to kill them no matter what. And he kills innocent people to do this. And that scene where he tortures them with the pictures of their dead victims. And he wants to make them feel all the pain that their victims felt is, I think, the most interesting and the one that has the most thing. Because do we become monsters ourselves just to take down a monster? Is that good? Does that make us better? Just to take down somebody who's evil? You know, do we have to become evil? And we did a lot of those things. Have We have done a lot of those things and more. You know, and I, I'm not I'm not saying Rob Zombie answers those questions. He doesn't. He just more brings them up. But that's the right question to bring up. And that's what makes a good horror film. And then that end. You know, they escape from the sheriff. Well, the sheriff gets killed. And they are running off. You know, they get in their convertible of some sort. And they're bloodied and bruised from this battle. They're all in a lot of pain. And, you know, there's a police brigade ready to come out. And they go down, blaze of glory. Very Bonnie and Clyde-esque uh, to the... Uh, song Free Bird by Leonard Skinner which I mean is maybe one of the most overused songs in cinema but it definitely it works it works and I think it tricks you in thinking you watched a better film <laughs> than you maybe remembered and I think that's those couple of reasons are the reasons I've included on the list it's incredibly disturbing it's not for everybody. I think many people will find it depraved and nihilistic and disgusting. But the reason I put it on my list, and that's why it's at 75, because I have issues with it as well. And I do agree that some of his Manson family pandering, I think their cool thing, doesn't sit well with me either. But I still think it's worth a merit, and I think it's an interesting horror film, and one of the better ones. And there wasn't a lot in the mid-2000s that came out. So, so what's your rating of... What's your personal rating? Uh, so I gave it three stars out of four. And I've gone back and forth with that. But I'm going to stick with three stars out of four. I think there's more good than bad hmm. to, for me to merit. It's successful enough. That, that is my low bar to clear. <laughs> but yeah, it's successful enough. What would be your rating? Um, I gave it two and a half stars out of four. Right. And because it, there is a really... I mean, some of it's really amazingly directed... He may overuse some of the freeze frame scenes, I think. Um, but I think it is well directed. I just think it's. Do you really want to watch it? I think that is the question. <laughs> so, okay. Um, Who should we? I mean, we should. Scariest scene, most memorable? We should wrap up here. Okay, uh, scariest scene to me, um, or I should say, let's start with most memorable scene. Memorable Sponge scene to me is the end. To me, that's the one that works the best. Scary scene, and I really want to say more most horrific scene, uh, is definitely that attack on the Banjo Sullivan. And that's when I think it goes into the mean-spirited territory. And I think that's where many critics who hated it, that pushed them over. I mean, I almost walked out. They got lost told. at that point. I, it's hard to get past that point, I think. So I understand. Um, so the next film we're going to be discussing is The Omen. The reason we wanted to do this is we're going to kind of, kind of go... For classics, and The Omen is number 59. So, and some people may think The Omen, classic Richard Donner, and I'll discuss why it's number 59 next week. So, for that, I'm QC. I'm Big J. Thank you so much for listening to the movie Down Low. We will see you next week. Bye.